Life Out Loud is a literary nonfiction podcast series that features real student stories. Born in a John Jay College creative nonfiction writing classroom in the fall 2015 semester, Life Out Loud seeks to diversify the perspectives typically shared in the CNF genre. Our project aims to amplify voices seldom heard through artful truth-telling simply because we believe that all stories matter. We make them, and they make us. You can always listen at lifeoutloudpodcast.com. Hi there, and welcome back to Life Out Loud, a literary nonfiction podcast through which we tell true, maybe all too true stories. I'm Karen, one of your hosts today. And I'm Rebecca, ready to dive in and share these stories with all of you. Thank you for joining us on the second episode of the fourth season entitled On the Run. Hey everyone, my name is Sadie, and I am a returning author to Life Out Loud, but a new host. And I'm so excited to get into these stories. You know me already. I'm Riley. In this episode, we join two authors as they navigate a period of their lives weighed down with crime in their pursuit of happiness, no matter how steep the cost. And really quickly, we just want to say that in studio today, we have a very special guest that we've waited for for a long time. Um, Our queen of the soundboard, um, the person who does all of the behind the scenes kind of editing and things, Vyslava had a little baby. Her name is Crystal. She's asleep right now. Um... But she's very cute. Just want to let you all know. Hi, Crystal. So with that exciting piece of news, let's get into it. This next piece is by an author who's choosing to remain anonymous. Let's take a listen to Anonymous's story entitled, My Previous Weakness, I Suppose. The day I run away, he's there, waiting for me, just like I expect him to be. He is leaning against the pole next to the do-not-cross yellow barrier. As I get closer, I can see his pale skin and light green eyes, illuminating any night. He hugs me. I feel safe. I feel like it would all be okay. Hey, I got you, he says, and kisses me on the cheek. All the hair on my body lifts like it will fly away entirely, leaving me hairless. His breath is warm, and his lips feel like cotton candy. I wrap my arms around his chest, and I can feel that he doesn't have any abs, but I don't mind. I'm glad that he's taller than me, so he can't see my face. If I were a white girl, my face would be a red tomato right now. I know, I respond. (sighs) After many summers of visiting my uncle at the military base placed in Utah, I knew the drill. Everyone there is extremely serious, to the point where it feels like smiling is an offense. As I walk in with my uncle, I can see the different types of aircrafts, soldiers aligned in positions, and commanders yelling at them. I was never familiar with brands of planes, but gosh, it seemed interesting. Not many 14-year-olds get to see parked military trucks or aircrafts this close and personal. The hallways were long and full. I literally felt like Alice in Wonderland while walking through these long tunnels that led to even bigger corridors. That day, I walk into this white room with horrible lighting. As we walk in, everyone is saluting my uncle. He then commands them to stand down. Some of them are speaking to one another. The others are speaking to my uncle. I lean against the wall because I feel their eyes staring. I guess the floral dress that I'm wearing causes major distractions because I can sense all eyes on me. I can hear whispers and giggles behind me. To them, I'm an overprotected little girl who's not allowed to speak to anyone. Someone who is always accompanied by her well-respected uncle who is the colonel on this base. If I were them, I would keep my distance as well. My uncle is not afraid to threaten anyone if he needs to. That's when I see him. He approaches me with a black tank top drenched in sweat. I haven't seen him since last summer. He looks even better today. 
He's less of a snob now. He used to be someone who couldn't be confronted. Someone who's better than anyone else. His cockiness imprinted into any place that he set foot in. But today, he's behaving differently. And I am very all right with that. Hey, Smiley Mae, he says out loud. His white, glistening teeth squeeze out of his bottom lip, just enough for me to get a glimpse of them. I could feel my uncle's glare drilling a hole through my skull. But I don't care. This one time, I dared to say something. But all that came out was a smirk. I can't help but think about what a complete loser I become as soon as I see, smell, or even sense his presence. <sighs> this summer is not like all the others. This one is special because we have been texting and communicating for a while now. It seems weird that someone who has been trained not to smile can wear a smile this well at the sight of me. I don't consider myself the best looker. My hair is curly. Without products, it would look like the Afro Diana Ross wore in the 80s. But he doesn't mind. My dresses are all printed with flowers, and my boots are as old as my grandfather. And to top it all off, I carry a Bible with me to read when I get bored. <sighs> Thinking of him this way is a sin in the eyes of God. I clutch my old pink Bible in my bag as he approaches me. He kisses me on the cheeks, and he whispers something in my ears. Let's meet tomorrow. I want to take you somewhere. Ooh, yes, 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 I say in my head. <clears throat> but aloud, I respond, we'll see. And I walk away. I know that I want to see him, but I've never been alone with a guy before, especially not one that's four years older than I am. I can't help but think about all the ways my uncle would bury him. Or, even worse, how God would electrocute us for even feeling this way at only 15 years old. <sighs> I get a text saying that he will pick me up. I don't want to seem desperate, but <laughs> I can't help it. I turn the volume up on my iPod. I jump on my bed and start dancing with my pillow all around the room. After 20 minutes of contemplating how long to wait before I text him back, I respond, Okay. From the window, I see his car. When I open the door, I see a dark blue Toyota Camry. He waits for me to come out of the house with the door of his car already open. As I sit, I can see the papers on the floor of the car. It smells like fresh cologne. In the back, his military book bag. His military shoes give it company. I was expecting a bicycle. I've never been in a car with someone who's not considered an adult, but in a way, he was an adult, I guess. As we arrive, I know exactly where we are. We are in this national park that shows Utah's version of canyons. He remembered that I said I wanted to visit here. I rarely get the chance to leave the base. And there, in the heights of Utah, is where I get my first kiss. This first kiss made me his girlfriend. This first kiss destroyed the wall that I built. This first kiss separated my faith and my uncle's scare tactics. Somehow, I was not afraid of going to hell, nor afraid of not being the angel my uncle expected me to be. All it takes is one phone call, and in six days, Jeremy is in New York City. He will soon save me from the home that I refuse to call mine. Ever since my grandfather died, I've been living with a family that I barely know. They treat me like I'm a stranger, like I'm not welcome in their home. I would have called my uncle, but his time with me is in the summers. I won't burden him. Jeremy lived in New York City in the past, and even says that he has family here that he's not close with. He understands what it feels like to be alone and not have anyone to depend on. 
fear that my uncle will find out that I'm with him. He can't hurt me, but he could hurt him. How can someone that is as perfect as he is love me enough to leave everything behind? As we are driving, I'm looking out the window and stare straight at the sky. I wonder, why aren't there any stars? Is he worried too? Will God judge me for running away with Jeremy? What will my uncle do to him? I am a minor, and he is considered an adult. What does this mean for him? Will I go to hell for running away? It's not like anyone will miss me. Since I arrived in New York City, the relationship with my mom is not as I hoped it to be. She treats me like I'm a stranger, and in a way, I am. I've only known her for three years, and instead of getting to know each other, we attack each other. She considers me a burden. Someone who she regrets allowing into her home. I look at the time on the car. It's 3 a.m. I look at him from the corner of my eye. Just try to rest, he says, without even seeming to have seen me look at him. We have a long way to go. He has complete domination of my body because I could feel my eyelids getting heavy. Or maybe it's because of all the crying that I did in the subway while on my way to meet him. But I want to stay awake. <sighs> I wake up the next morning, but it's not in Brooklyn on my tiny bed, nor in the car. I could slightly smell lavender and fresh grass. It takes me back to the best memories of my life. My childhood. It used to smell like this in the early mornings when I lived in the Dominican Republic. These were the times when things made sense. When love was unconditional and the word family meant a great deal to me. Could all of this be a dream? He walks in without a shirt. Here, I made you something to eat, he says with a smirk on his face. Shit, for some reason his body looks more appealing than the food. Thank you. It looks amazing, I say. We stay in a cabin in the Poconos for a few days and don't use credit cards so that my uncle can't find us. By this time, he should know that I ran away. We can't afford to be found. Jeremy has extra money saved up, enough to keep us afloat for a few weeks. We spend the time laughing, sharing secrets about one another, and playing ridiculous games. He was an orphan, but he knew his mother. Confronting her is something that he is unable to do, something that we both have in common. I learned that my uncle helped him get his life together and find a job on the military base. <sighs> but then, money started running out. I knew of a place where my uncle used to stay when he visited New York. The doorman remembers me. It was on 42nd and 12th Avenue near the piers. We drive to New York City and just like that, we're in Riverdale Luxury Building. We stay in the staircases or rooftop because it's warm enough to do that. Other days, we stay in rooms that are being renovated and not yet rented. But most of the times, we sleep in the car. The first time, it was because of food. I wait outside to make sure that no one is coming. I can see the kitchen from where I'm standing. As he stashes bread, cookies, and ham into his military bag, I hear the elevator's beeping sound. I knock on the door, just like he said, to signal him that someone is coming our way. I start running ahead, and as I slowly turn around, I can see him running behind me. We got away with it. We sit in the hallway. He makes my sandwich for me from the food we just grabbed. Then he gives me a slurp of one of the juices. After I have my food, he makes his own. I know that I'm not supposed to be doing this. Stealing. But it's temporary. I wish that I could go to my uncle and tell him that I'm ready to live with him. But I can't. Going back means leaving Jeremy. Besides, when I turn 18... 
we'll be able to be together without having to do any of these sorts of things. It's harder in the wintertime than in the summer. After a few months, things become more extreme. We get caught in the building we're staying in, so we have to sleep in the car a lot now. There were times when we thought of just going back to Utah and trying to explain everything to my uncle. But then we would joke about all the bad things my uncle would do to him. One day, as we're holding hands walking through Central Park, I feel overwhelmingly optimistic. I feel like things will be fine and that there's nothing that could separate us. My thoughts are interrupted. That girl looks like she's got a lot of money he says, and she's in sweats, which means she lives around here. I'm annoyed, and I don't even understand how it's come to this. No, this is too far, I want to scream. But he has a point. We need the money. I want to sleep in a hotel tonight, not the car, don't I? Arguing about our reality served no purpose anyway. I'd learned that. I wait around the bridge as he tells me to do. From a distance, I see him approaching her. She's a white woman who looks to be in her 20s. She has pink Victoria's Secret sweats and her hair is tied up in a messy bun. She has a black parka coat that shows the shape of her body and dark glasses on. As he forces the bag from her hand, I hear her screaming, help, help, help! Her voice stops me. I can feel my feet becoming one with the floor. I zone out. This is not me. This is not... <gasps> She's on the ground now. He's pushed her. She's just someone who just wanted to walk her dog. She was someone who was vulnerable, with no idea that today was the day she was going to get robbed. Run! Run! He screams as he barrels towards me. We hold hands while we run. As he starts a car, I see the woman running towards us with now another person. <sighs> we drive away. Jeremy starts laughing. The woman becomes smaller and smaller and smaller as we drive away. The money in her wallet is enough for us to spend two nights in the hotel. We now have about $600, counting the money from the last place. But how long until it runs out again? We make it to this cheap hotel, and we're both silent at this point. It smells like cigarettes and cheap rubber in here. The lights are dim. It is not as appealing as the other places. But at least it has a bed. Are we going to keep doing this? I ask furiously. My eyes are slanted, my voice quivering. What else can we do, May? Anything but this! I exclaim. His eyes widen. I guess he didn't think that I could raise my voice. He suddenly wraps his arms around me. I wish that I could give you the best. You don't deserve this life, he whispers to me. He turns me around and kisses me on the lips. I'm not the type to cry, but I could feel my eyes overflow. I look away because deep down I know that this is the sacrifice that we need to make. It's not like we have a home to run to or someone to count on. I will fix this, he promises. <sighs> I open my eyes, and there he is right next to me, with a smile on his face. Ugh, this is when he wraps me back again. I feel tangled and confused, but so sure of my feelings for him. This time, I'm the first to get up. I pick out what I want us to eat. While we eat Chinese food, he says, I want this to be our last time. I want us to leave New York and start fresh. I feel so relieved. He feels how I feel. We'll stop now. I don't even need to reply. If this one last time is what will make this stop entirely, it's worth it, right? It's cold, and Jeremy tells me that this lady he knows slash heard of has a lot of money, 
enough for him and I to run away together for good and stop this life of stealing. This is the first time that we speak about the future. So I smile and I do what he says. This is the first time that someone included me in their discussions of a future life. But this time, I'm more involved than usual. He asked me to tell her that I need to call my father to pick me up. I'm lost and unfamiliar with this area. The white woman, about mid-fifties, smiles and politely escorts me to her home phone. As I pretend to dial, I notice a picture of what appears to be a younger version of Jeremy on the fridge? Before I can react, he enters. There is a long pause between them. They're both looking at each other. I don't know what to do at this point. Everything is vibrating, and I can taste the blood. Blood. From my fingernails. I didn't notice that I chewed them to the bone. He tells me to go downstairs and to wait for him, but something in me tells me to get help instead. <sighs> now my heart is pounding. Every step I take is supposed to feel like freedom, yet it feels like a dark tunnel without any lights at the end of it. I am afraid for the older woman. This woman was kind enough to help me and not even think twice to offer her home phone to me. There's just something in her eyes that brings me back to reality this time. I run to the nearest grocery store, and I say the same line that I told the woman. But this time, I do make a call. I call the police. It takes the cops about 10 minutes. I know because I can't stop looking at the cable box in the grocery store. I run to them when they arrive. I tell them everything. I can see Jeremy being escorted by the police officers into a cop car. I'm not sure if it's pain or rage swarming from his eyes. As for the woman... I don't see her come out. The police are still in her house. <sighs> what was supposed to be our way out ended up with me in the back of a police car. It wasn't the way out that I expected, but it was a way out. Wow. Ooh, that is intense. Yeah, oh. that whole last bit there—that's like that was had heart racing whole setup going yeah. on there. Yeah, absolutely. Like I, like we we learned after that it's because that she's biting her nails that there's blood. Mm -hmm. When yeah. she said blood, I was like, no, no, no yeah. don't tell me you did it. Yeah, you did something weird. They regret. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, like while reading this piece, I couldn't help but feel like it was like watching a movie and um the beginning was like a flash forward yeah. with the next sections showing how the first part of the story came to be and yeah what do you guys think about that i don't know i liked it i thought it was very it, it made it more interesting to me like drew me into want to find out like want to keep listening you know and like what happens next yeah oh yeah oh, um, in the middle of things yeah. oh right and maybe it's right i remember that yeah. start in the middle of things yeah yeah, yeah. It's yeah. really, it's a really cool way to just like get people's attention right off the bat. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Everything, everything just felt so like vibrant. Mm -hmm. So there was like a strong quote that stood out. It goes, all the hair on my body lifts like it will fly away entirely, leaving me hairless. It gave me the sense of being exposed or vulnerable or being hairless. But you all think she felt this way often with Bellamy? It makes me wonder if there were any other indicators that he was kind of off. I don't know. Like, I, I got, like, the sense that they were just, like, really head over heels in, in love. love. yeah. You know, like, yeah. And especially with how young she is. Because what was the age difference? Four years? Five? Four years. Yeah. She was 14. He was 19. Yeah. That's still, that's such a huge age difference. Because that's, like, yeah. young teenager yeah. versus, like, yeah. a mm -hmm. man. Yeah. He's yeah. a man at 19. You can yeah. drive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he can vote. He like can that can age, vote. yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. That age difference in that mm -hmm. age range is huge. So wait, can we just talk about the fact that this is legally kidnapping, right? Like, is, right? Is this a story about kidnapping? <laughs> like, right? honestly, at this point, I think it is because like there's a point where she's literally like, "Oh yeah, I'm 15 years old. 
and this 19 year old and he's considered an adult but and i'm considered a minor and it's like mm-hmm. there's a reason for that <laughs> right. and it i i don't even know what to say at that yeah. point like honestly and like he's treating her like a child like he's he's giving her juice boxes oh my God. making her sandwiches like Oh my god! You're uh, it's me. just it's an, it just makes me wonder if there were any legal repercussions mm, from this. True. And like we're joking about it, but this is actually like a really serious offense. Yeah, yeah, that's not something to be like playing around with. Like fourteen year old is like what barely high school, barely yeah, high school, or like freshman, sophomore, junior, freshman, kind of yeah. Stuff. That is a child who is now not in school because this mm-hmm. is winter time. Yeah, and he's an adult who's in the military. Yeah, yeah, and then like the thing is that really like grinds my gears i guess is the fact that like her uncle like went out of his way to help this guy get into the military and get his life together and then he still goes after his niece mm-hmm. and kidnaps her basically yeah. <laughs> from utah to new york city yeah and then to the poconos back to new york yeah. city. like that's not only kidnapping in a state that is like a federal mm, offense yeah. Oh my god, yeah. Yeah, that's like crossing state lines. Yeah, like, basically. So yeah, while we talk about the crime that this story is about, the stealing, there's really other crimes here. But like yeah. if you yeah. yeah, it's not mm-hmm. okay. It's, it's definitely very much legal. Okay. He knew what he was doing. She, oh, yeah. she was only oh, yeah, fourteen. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. That's oh, yeah, eighth definitely. grade. Yeah, that, that's yeah. a kid. And and it's it's this weird thing because in the beginning of it, she kind of mentions it kind of like one off, like and he's four years older than me, so my uncle won't understand. But it, and it's it's kind of like swept into the rug. She doesn't think much of it. And then I'm like, wait. wait. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. That, that means something. Like, As you go forward, it's like these little indicators that he kind of just kind of leads things. Uh-huh. And right. there aren't very much like too many like outward things that that like um show that she's super uncomfortable right um with like how he's acting there's there is a part where he like laughs after stealing from that woman in the park right Mm -hmm. yeah yeah um where it's like a little bit weird but it just makes me like wonder like did you feel like this all the time like did you always feel this vulnerable around him Mm. you know and then we also have to take into account that this is her point of view like limited to like Mm -hmm. what she's seeing so Mm -hmm. if she's head over heels then theoretically we're head over heels as well since we're seeing it in her point of view so even if she sees things if she doesn't want to acknowledge them we're not going to see them yeah like this author is obviously much older now and i wonder that if they probably look back on this and think oh my goodness at this moment i know exactly like like this was so not okay and this was also not okay and he made me feel like this but in that moment because we are kind of transported into the past Mm -hmm. We we just see nothing really wrong with him, and yeah, that could be why I'm not like seeing like immediate indicators because the author's choosing not to show that right. so much mm-hmm. because this is her mind. It is there though. I a little bit. I remember in class, Sadie, you might remember this. Did you remember mm-hmm. in class it came up that um, she in the, the whole beginning of the story she never picks what she wants to eat. He always like decides mm-hmm. what's going to be for dinner, and she does a yeah. lot of sleeping oh. while yeah. he drives her around. And then at the end, there's a moment where she picks what she wants to eat. Like, she says what they're going to yes. have as a meal. I, that was so <gasps> powerful. Chinese. That was so powerful because I know it's like we see this story through this 14-year-old girl's eyes. She's, like, young. She's in love. And she's looking at him through these rose-colored glasses. And she's, like, yeah, he's picking everything. He's calling the shot. Mm-hmm. She is under his yeah, spell. She drives. She sleeps. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, he's in charge. Right. He's in charge. This isn't like a partnership, two young lovers in yeah. love. Mm-mm. It's not a partnership. Actually not. Yes. It's unequal. Really start, mm. It's power. It's when you really start reading between the lines there, it, it doesn't feel entirely like a right. partnership. And then toward the end, she picks what she wants to eat. She decides she's going to call the police. It's almost a coming of age narrative. Yeah. No, she definitely. She up by deciding For sure. I'm not doing yeah. this. And it's such a surprise to him when she even raises her voice. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. There is a moment yeah. where she just like straight up is like and like this and it's like one sentence that she like raises her voice mm. and he seems surprised by that and I'm like this is the first time you've 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 been together for like um like I don't even know weeks or days and now and together. you've never like bickered. Right. Yeah. Right. You've never like heard her right. raise she her voice. She never talks back. She exactly. never picks the food. She never you know yeah. that is so true. Red flag right there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so if we're reading that as a coming-of-age piece, there's growing pains in that, you know, it's not always comfortable growing up. She says at the end, Every step I take is supposed to feel like freedom, yet it feels like a dark tunnel without any light at the end of it. You know, that almost feels like the sentiment of that line is reoccurring throughout the whole piece. Yeah, if it isn't like one guy taking care of her, it's another with her uncle and... She's kind of looked at as, I don't know, she's also in these like floral dresses. She's looked at as kind of like a doll or an accessory to anyone. And she's just kind of used to being um, one step behind another guy. Right. Yeah. Never in fully control of herself. Mm -hmm. But then again, you got to remember, this is a 14 year old as well. Yeah. She's still a kid. So that's also like something to take into account. Like, no, she's not in control. But for good reason, you know, with her uncle, with her uncle. But like when it comes to like transitioning that she kind of almost takes Bellamy as like a continuation of her uncle. Another uncle. Yeah. So like in the same way that he kind of makes her rely on him, too, Mm. where he he takes her away from her family and then her uncle doesn't even know that she's being taken away. So somebody has to fill that spot of like a guardian Mm. and this is where bellamy Mm kind of steps in and it's just so interesting because throughout she's almost like just very like happy throughout and i was watching this movie there movie the other day it was called room and it was like oh Oh, my oh room actually just room Mm -hmm. Room. yes with three yes yes. okay and and the way that the little boy talks in it reminds me of her so much because he okay it was it's about this like little boy that grew up in in a room his mother was in captivity because she was kidnapped when she was younger and she you know was you know she like gave birth to him Mm -hmm. after being raped by this man um and the way that she kind of like protected him from certain things was interesting Mm -hmm. and so the way he talks so he would be like big nick comes at night not big nick what's his name um old nick comes at night you know i'm supposed to stay quiet just like a little kid and there's also a moment where like his mother um getting a little off topic but it'll relate back in a bit um where his mother commits suicide well tries to commit suicide Mm -hmm. and um he finds her like in yeah, he just like finds her in the bathroom having like swallowed some pills and he's just like freaking out and then his narration is like mom tried to go to heaven early silly mommy she forgot about me mm. and it's like these little things are like that's so serious yeah but he, he but he's obviously you know as adults do kind of like taught these stories that make it a little bit easier right. and the way that she talks when she's like we can't be together now but you know, when I'm 18 yeah. and um, things will be better. Yeah, things will be better. We won't have to like do all this stuff. Like yeah. it makes me feel uncomfortable. But, but yeah, and it, it's just so interesting to watch that manipulation right. happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and especially from this point of view mm-hmm. and in her own voice yeah. as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, with that, um, thank you to the author for choosing to share this piece with us. We really appreciate it. And We had a good discussion. Yeah, yeah. Thank you to the author. This piece is by an author who is choosing to remain anonymous. Jay is residing in California and is currently in the paralegal program at the University of San Diego. She's an intern at a criminal law office in California, but she hopes to return to Florida in the future, where she plans to use her knowledge and experience to inspire and educate those who are incarcerated and formerly incarcerated. Thank you, Karen. Let's take a listen to Jay's piece. Part one. Thursday night, I packed a bag full of white clothes, a white t-shirt, a white bra, white socks, and white underwear. I knew the drill. Wear white because it's the only color you're allowed to wear underneath once you've changed into the jail wear. If your stuff is white, they let you keep it. Besides the ugly nude or forest green uniforms they'd give you, you'd be naked underneath if you didn't have whites. At least until someone offered you some socks and a sports bra, or until you had the money to order one off commissary yourself. Being locked up sucked, but I knew enough to make it suck a little less. I would turn myself in, but only after Pree's party on Saturday. I knew the police were looking for me, so I figured it was for one of two things. One, recently being pulled over and getting a ticket for driving with a business purpose-only license, which, alone, should have violated my probation. Yet, 
no one came to get me. Or two, for driving that one day in November where I was trying to avoid number one from happening in the first place. Stupid Joe. My probation was simple. Avoid any contact with the police, so that meant no driving. My license was suspended at the time, so driving should have been out of the question. But it's hard not to be able to drive when there's no other form of transportation and nothing is in walking distance. I hadn't reinstated my license yet because of all the fees I had to pay to reinstate my license. And with no job, I wasn't sure how I was going to pay them either. I had violated probation because I drove. Now the police were looking for me. Great. (sighs) Pri's birthday was Saturday, and I had planned to throw a big party for her. Pri was my best friend for three years, but I felt like I knew her my entire life. She was one of the few I could rely on and trust with my life. She had surprised me for my birthday two years ago. She planned a big hotel party for me near South Beach, so it was only right I planned something big for her 21st birthday. If I could just make it through tonight and make the party I was planning, I would gladly do my time. I didn't want the stupid stuff I'd done to result in me not being there for Pri. Not for this. I hated the fact that I was in a position in which I might not be able to. When I first met Pri, we didn't hit it off right away because as she later told me, I looked like a bitch. I guess I just had one of those faces because I used to get that a lot. It wasn't until we began hanging out that we realized how alike we were. Our group consisted of six people, Puka, Shelby, Coco, Steph, Pri, and myself. Pri and I were the two girls with the common sense who never did dumb shit like the other four. We grew into a family, spending holidays, birthdays, or any special events together. I grew closest to Pri because of how we perceived the world around us. We always thought things through before reacting. Plus, we both had love for bacon and potatoes, so it was only right that we became best friends. I had a lot of love and respect for Pri because when I was down and out, she was always there looking out for me. There were moments when I didn't have somewhere to sleep or nothing to eat, and I was always welcomed into her home. At that time, she barely knew me, and Pri still looked out for me, more than any other friends I had. When it came to money, she was never stingy with me. If she had it, I had it, and vice versa. She never faltered or asked for anything in return. We always respected each other's boundaries, and when I needed someone the most, she was there telling me shit would be okay. She was my diary, and I was hers. We knew each other's secrets, everything unfiltered. And even when we didn't agree on things, we still found common ground. She truly was my sister at heart. (sighs) Part 2 I was never the bad kid growing up. I always did as I was told and followed the rules. My rebellious stage didn't come until high school, around the age of 15. I wouldn't even call it rebelling. I just didn't want to be home. I liked to hang out and have fun, but I never caused trouble. I didn't do drugs or drink much, and if I did, it was mainly during the summers, when I didn't have school. In school, I was always on honor roll. My mother was always very proud of my smarts. After high school, my mom made plans to move with her new husband and my little brother to Ohio. I was included, but I just chose not to go. I decided to stay where everything was familiar, where I knew people, where my friends were. I was afraid of being away from what I already knew. It seemed kind of silly now, but change wasn't something I looked forward to back then, and so I stayed in Florida. Living alone wasn't as easy as I thought, though, especially not at 17. It was a rude awakening for me. Soon, I couldn't afford stuff, and it seemed like there was always more to afford. My mom helped whenever she could, but I didn't want to keep asking. I felt too needy. And so, to make ends meet, I suddenly found myself as more than just Joe, the sweet girl who loves animals and always tries to help everyone. I was those things still, but I was also now Joe, the girl who did not hesitate when it came to getting money. That's when I became a thief, among other things. (sighs) The first time I stole came from cashing a fake check. I had a friend who knew a guy who created fake paychecks. The plan was simple. They would produce a check and put a company name on it like Taco Bell or Target. They would give it to you and you would cash it at the bank, supermarket, or check cashing place. It always seemed like a good plan until you got the money back, which you had to split with two other people who made it happen. I did this only a few times a year. In fact, I never did anything more than three times because, as in all things, luck fades. Three times or less, because regret would always find its way into my heart when I did these things. I never knew whose account the money was coming out of, or whether it was from a company or an individual, but I always felt bad afterwards. 
Taking someone's hard-earned money always made me want to stop because I think of how hard my mother worked for her money. But the chance to make an extra few dollars would always take over that regret. I didn't always want to keep doing it, but I did. I had bills to pay, and my $300 check every two weeks from my job was not cutting it. I learned myself that Miami doesn't just signify beautiful skies and beaches, but also its acronym. Money is a major issue. Miami taught me that no one got me like me, and for the remainder of my time in Miami, I lived by that. Still, even when I stopped feeling guilty about taking the money itself, I could never shake the guilt I felt when I thought about my mom. My mom didn't raise me like this. She didn't raise me in a bad neighborhood, and she would have never let me hang out with bad people, even if I'd wanted to. My mother wasn't lazy, and she showed me more than enough love and affection growing up. She even made sure that I had everything I wanted. She taught me to treat people with respect and never to speak about my good fortunes to anyone. I knew she'd done better than what I was reflecting. (sighs) Part 3 When I moved to Port Charlotte at age 22, I had this big idea that I'd find a new beginning. No one knew me there, and I could stop being a thief and a dealer. I could be someone who did it the right way, like my mom always had. But my hopes for a new start were quickly cut short. I never had trouble getting a job before, and for the most part, if I left one job, I always had another within a week. But Port Charlotte seemed destined to not give me a chance. I applied anywhere that was hiring. Walmart, Publix, Taco Bell, veterinary offices, Kmart, and every single one of the 20 stores that were in the mall. Yet, no one called. It didn't matter that I had over three years' experience in customer service or that I was a veterinary technician and a kennel assistant for over two years. What was the problem? Was it my tattoos? I'd wonder. Or was it because I was new to the city? Maybe it was because everyone knew everyone there. Or maybe it was because the majority of the citizens were white. So a Hispanic girl like me with tattoos everywhere always stood out. I guess I looked like a criminal to them. I'm not anymore, I wanted to scream. But after a while, I just sort of gave up trying to not be one anymore. I went a year without a job in Port Charlotte, and it was there that I was first arrested. Petty theft. For stealing food, sanitary napkins, and some clothes after mine went missing. My friend claimed she couldn't find them after I left them in her garage. Yeah, right. I remember thinking that I could go stay with my mom in Ohio. My mother would have welcomed me back with open arms. She actually waited for that day to happen, a lot. But I was an adult now. I couldn't go running to mom. I had too much pride. (sighs) Part 4 The incident in November is the reason the police would come looking for me months later. I used someone else's license to drive so that I would not get in trouble again for driving, which would have violated my probation at the time. I ended up getting three tickets one night in November. One, driving without prescription glasses. Two, driving without a seatbelt. And three, driving while playing loud music. I had been pulled over after making a gas run when dropping off an intoxicated friend after a party. As soon as I pulled out of the gas station, the officer was right behind me flashing his lights. Funny thing was that he had been at the gas pump right next to me. As he walked towards the car, I began to panic. I had two months left on probation before I had my early release from this control. I asked my friend for the driver's license she had found a few weeks earlier, Winnie something or other. We resembled each other a lot in the picture of her license. When the officer approached the car, I was digging through the glove compartment when he said, Do you know why I stopped you? No, I respond. Your music is too loud, and you're not wearing a seatbelt. Seriously? I just took my seatbelt off to look for the registration. You were right next to me at the gas station, so I know you saw my seatbelt on. I disliked the police in Port Charlotte, so I continued. And for that matter, can you hear my music now? Or did you hear it at the gas station while you were parked next to me? Are you the officer, or am I? He responded, License, insurance, and registration. I handed over Winnie's license while still trying to find the other stuff. He came back and asked where my glasses were. What glasses? I thought. Apparently, Winnie needed glasses to drive. Think. I have contacts in. I quickly lied. He flashed his light immediately into my eyes, blinding me instantly. I don't see contacts in your eyes. He finished the convo. How the hell was he supposed to see contacts in my eyes when I could barely open them? 
<sighs> Part 5. It was in January when my November stunt caught up with me. The night they brought me in, I was at Shelby's house. We had been going over the details for Pri's party on Saturday. I had my whites packed and ready, just in case, because at any moment, the police could come looking for me. By now, I had been told by a few friends that the police were looking for me. Pri's birthday party was going to be big. Everyone would be there, and I'd spent a lot of money and time on the party. People from Tampa and Fort Myers had heard about it. I had booked a location, Coyotes, a club near the Port Charlotte Beach. Steph and Puka helped me pick out decorations. The color theme was black and pink. They had purchased the happy birthday signs, and I had placed the order for the cake and the balloons to be picked up Saturday at 5 p.m. Coco suggested we get male and female strippers, so we did. Everything was ready to go for the party. Only question was, would I be there? It was only a little after 8 p.m. when they came knocking on Shelby's door. No, I thought, hoping more than anything that it was one of our friends coming over. I just needed another few days to be here for Pri. Joe, the police are here looking for you, Coco whispered. Shit. My heart was racing and my hands got cold instantly. I wasn't ready to go. No, I was not going back there yet. I wasn't ready to be locked in a small-ass room with no windows and a detoxing bunkie. I needed a little bit more time and then I'd go. Damn it! Why couldn't they wait till Sunday? I needed to find a place to go hide quickly. I thought about running out the back door and through the neighbor's backyards, but I figured police might be waiting. Think, Joe. Do something. Shelby's house was near the water, and I remembered there was a small boat tied to the dock. Maybe I could jump in there and hide in the darkness. I immediately X'd that idea. There's gators in there. I found a spot in Shelby's closet, between the wall and the wooden six-drawer dresser. The space was about a foot wide, big enough for a seven-year-old to fit easily, but not for anyone who was 5'6", like Coco. Lucky for me, I was 5'2". I managed to fit into the spot comfortably, with my back pressed on the other wall, knees to my chest, and my arms holding my legs. Within seconds, Shelby and Coco had thrown a bunch of clothes on top of me, making it seem as if it were just a pile of dirty clothes. Almost immediately, the police entered the room. I could hear them. Where's Joe Lopez? I heard him say. I couldn't see anything, but I could imagine the officers' faces. We don't know, Coco said. She left not too long ago. I held my breath. My mind was racing. I thought back to high school. How shit was so different then. I was so smart and had a vision, but my desire to remain in what I knew destroyed that vision. Maybe I wouldn't have been struggling so much had I went to college after graduation or moved to Ohio with my mom. Well, it was too late now for all the what-ifs. I thought they were just about to leave. I could feel the combo wrapping up. But that's when it happened. I suddenly heard Shelby's older sister, Heather, enter the room. She didn't know I was hiding in the closet, but she'd seen me in the house earlier. She knew I was around somewhere. Trying to convince the officers I was there, Heather said, She was just here. She has to be here. Oh my God, hear this dumb bitch go. Shut the fuck up! I thought to myself, willing her to be quiet. But there it was. The redhead on probation herself for DUI kept insisting I was there. I always disliked Heather. She was always bitching at Shelby for little shit. She was 35 living at home because of her DUI charge for which she lost her license. I think that made her more of a bitch because everything had to do with her not wanting to violate probation. Like we all had to revolve around that. I remember Shelby fighting with her sister about her birthday party once. Her sister refused to have alcohol there for the fear that the cops would magically show up and search the house for alcohol. Heather was always the bitch in the house. She had a problem with everything, yet she didn't do anything but sit on her computer and play Second Life. To my left, I heard the sound of the closet door opening. My heartbeat increased and sweat began to pile up on my forehead. The sound of my thumping heart is all I heard for a few seconds. I felt like Poe's character in The Telltale Heart when he heard nothing but the beating heart before confessing. Could the officer hear my beating heart? Was I going to jump out and confess like Poe's? My anxiety increased as I imagined the clothes on top of me slowly rising, the same way the toys in the claw machine do. I begin to pray I don't get found. When the flashlight hit my pile of clothes, my heart stopped beating. He began skimming from left to right, allowing the light to seep through the small spaces between the clothes. I laid my head on my knees so that the light wouldn't shine on my face or eyes exposing me. He continued to shuffle the clothes that lay on top of me for about ten seconds. Nothing. See? We told you Joe wasn't here. 
Shelby said in her, now you can leave, bitch, voice. If you guys are lying, I can arrest you, warned one of the officers. I smiled, relieved. I knew my girls weren't going to say anything. We were family, and family doesn't snitch. But Heather, on the other hand, was not. Was she still there? Was she hearing this warning? They exited out of the door, and seconds later, I jumped out of my hiding spot, ready to run out the back. Coco went to make sure the officers were gone, but came back quickly. One was still outside! I quickly jumped back into my hiding spot, praying once again. As Coco finished piling clothes on me, the officer walked back into the room. He searched the room once more, asking Coco again where I was. Do not lie to us, he warned again. We can arrest you for aiding Lopez to run. Even though I knew Coco wasn't going to say anything, deep down, I started to get nervous. I hoped she didn't break. Coco swore she didn't know, but Heather was back. I could hear her. She was just here. There's no way she could have left that quick. I'm on probation, she continued, so you girls need to tell them where Joe is because I'm not going to jail for neither one of you. She then took the initiative to search for me herself. And that's when I really got scared. I knew I was going to get caught with Heather looking. She began taking clothes out of my pile until I felt the light shine on me like a spotlight on stage. Come on, Joe, get out, she ordered. I was so pissed at her. I guess the look on my face said it all because Heather stared back at me and said, I know you're probably mad at me, but it's for the best, Joe. Just get things over with now. I cut my eyes at her. Stupid bitch, I was going to get things over with, just after Pri's party. Do you know why we're arresting you? said the officer. He was a tall white guy with gray hair. He towered over me as I sat in the chair like a mother does their children when they do something bad. Probation violation? No. You impersonated someone else, which resulted in repercussions for that person. You don't remember me? I gave you the citations in November. Even though I did know who he was, I said, No, I don't. Well, Miss Lopez, you're under arrest. Can I grab my whites at least? No. Great. Now I'm going to be naked in there. Packed a bag for nothing. <sighs> Part 6 Before the officer pulled out of Shelby's driveway, he read me my charges. Forgery, driving while license suspended, criminal use of identification. I tuned him out. I knew everything I'd done. I didn't need him to tell me. I just wondered how the hell I got myself in some shit again. When was I going to learn? The only thing that brought me back was the officer suddenly addressing me as Joe. What the hell? Are we friends? Sir, please, don't call me Joe. I don't know you. The officer looked at me through the rearview mirror and said nothing else. <sighs> the ride to the jail was silent. As I thought about my best friend, Pri. I was missing out on her party. The one I had planned. I knew I had let her down, but I also knew that she understood. My situation at the time was inevitable. I was going to get found out sooner or later. Goodness gracious. Wow. Yeah, that's so, uh, just knowing that, like, that didn't happen. Like, you couldn't go to the party. That's so wild. Um, thank you for being with us, Jojo. Jojo is actually on the phone. Jojo isn't actually in studio with us right now. Um, but yeah, thank you for being here. No, no problem. Thanks for having me. <laughs> okay, so um, Jojo, I guess the first question we're going to start out with is, so you first introduced a specific scenario in your story, and then you followed it with parts two and three which were kind of more of a character background, and then you continued with the events that led up to the introduced scenario of getting arrested. So the question is, why did you choose to break up the timeline of your story like that? Um, well, there, there was, I think it was just more so of like, giving like a brief um, scenario, like starting like almost at the end. Mm. And then just coming back around and just like introducing the characters, uh, my friends, which like they always mean a lot to me. So it was kind of just like establishing the, the the fact that like my friends are important to me and like I would avoid jail for them. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. Like being able to like, yeah, like that you really got that connection 
with with the character. Yeah, definitely. That. Yeah, that's really cool. And um, yeah, on that note, throughout the story, the listener really like hopes so badly that you're able to make it to the party and to Pri's party of all things. And it really makes us think about kind of like the simple things that people miss out on when they're incarcerated, particularly in your case when you were really just trying to survive. And it's interesting because it's not about you being a bad seed like those primarily white police officers made you out to be or those primarily white people in your town made you out to be. So what factors right. were present in their basically dehumanization of you as a person to the point that the officer who arrested you wouldn't even like let you bring your whites so you didn't have to be naked? Um, I think it was just, well, prior to all of, like, prior to this actual incident, um, I had, a, like, I had been pulled over a few times with a suspended license. Um, so they already had like, oh, you know, this person is a basically like a bad person because their license is suspended. And like that led to like a previous jail incident as well, because with the suspended license, you can't drive, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, so then that just kind of like put a target on my back, honestly. And then it's such a small town in that area that like you will stick out if you're not from there for sure. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't from there. So it just made it easier for them to just like, treat you however they wanted to treat you because hey you're like not one of us or something like that that's kind of what it felt like right so what happened after this piece ended because you've obviously made your way up here to new york and are a college student who wrote this as a class assignment so what was the journey like to where you are now um well after that happened i actually ended up doing two months um in the county jail um and the day before my actual release, I finally saw my attorney and he just told me that they were gonna give me two years of probation. Mm -hmm. um, they wanted me to serve time, six months, but he got it just to give, um, for me to have probation. And that was a little bit of a struggle too um, for the first year, just because they were always like demanding me to like come and check in and I didn't yeah. have a car. Mm -hmm. So it was a little difficult there. Um, I completed the two years probation, um, luckily without uh, violating, and um, and then I made the decision to finish school, and I moved to New York, and then now I'm in California, <laughs> still wow. in school. Okay. Cool. What do, what do you do in California? Um, well, I'm in the paralegal program right now um, at one of the colleges. Cool. That's really awesome that, you know, what you're doing. Yeah, that, that that's so, that I'm just... Uh, I was I really loved reading your story, Jojo, and oh, the way it ended, it's like, oh no, she can't go to priest party after everything that she's been through and everything that she's gone to. She didn't get to go to the party. But to hear like that you're doing well and I, I hope that you're happy now because you deserve that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Thank you, thank you. Yeah. Really appreciate it. <laughs> What would you like listeners or readers to take away from this story? Um, just basically that, you know, everyone makes mistakes and like your mistakes really don't define who you are as a person or what you can do after, you, you know, because like a lot of people have that, that stigma where it's like, oh, you know, I've done bad or I've done this and that. Now I can't like do anything else. And it's like, no, you really can. If you, you know, if you really want it and stuff like that, you can definitely turn your whole life around. And I feel like everyone should just, you know, not limit themselves just because they have a background or anything like mm -hmm. that. Definitely. Thank you. That's awesome. Yeah. So thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it again. <laughs> that concludes our second episode of the fourth season, On the Run. We are all so excited to bring you new stories in the coming months, amplifying these younger voices from backgrounds you don't normally hear about. You can always find out more at www.lifeoutloudpodcast.com or by searching Life Out Loud Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or YouTube. We also have an Instagram and Facebook if you want to get some behind-the-scenes action. We'd like to thank everyone who helps make this possible, including our sound engineers and editors, our episode writers, our website developers, and everyone behind the scenes here at Life Out Loud. And to our audience, we hope you loved these stories as much as we did. It was a joy to bring them to you. 
a very special thank you to everyone listening in. And since we have a baby in the room, we'll see you soon. And good night.